The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. With that, let's go ahead and look to God's Word together. If you are visiting today, maybe this is your first time ever at our church, thanks for being here. Or maybe you've just been traveling. I know, I know that we have some regulars and even some members who have been out. I was actually out last week, so thank you to Derek and all the other saints who filled in and blessed our saints. Derek preached from the Word of God and encouraged many. And now we are back. We have been going through the book of Genesis as a church. And we're actually just doing the first three chapters. We started, I think, sometime in July or around that time. And as we were able, we're just going Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and just going straight through. And we, I decided to preach on Genesis 1 through 3 because these chapters... They're the first chapters of the Bible. They are absolutely foundational for the Christian. And usually we are in the New Testament and have been for 13 years, but I just thought it would be very practical and relevant to look at the foundation of Scripture. So much of these important truths that are relevant to the Christian and even how we live our lives today is rooted in the foundation of Genesis 1 through 3. So I wanted to thank you also for your feedback. I get ongoing feedback on sermons. Sometimes you don't get any feedback, which is kind of scary or weird. But anyway, but when you've been doing this, you know, year after year, you do get feedback and you kind of learn how to assess the feedback and been getting actually a lot of good feedback, good questions, some suggestions about Genesis, even uh, comments this morning of how from members telling me this morning of how they were benefiting from our detailed study in the book of Genesis and how it's been incredibly eye-opening and helpful for them so we trust that's where god is leading us we pray to the holy spirit and ask that he would be our teacher you can't understand scripture apart from the illuminating work of the holy spirit of god so he helps us understand scripture and then he also helps us apply it so we call upon his help this day for that very thing we're going to be looking at genesis chapter 3 in your bulletin there it lists the title the title of today's sermon is the first sin Oh, I thought this was the Christmas season. It's a happy season, yes. And this is totally relevant to the Christmas season, the first sin, because it explains why Jesus came into the world. Scripture is clear about that. Think of Mark chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke 19, Matthew chapter 1, 17 and following. Very clear. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why was he born? Why do we celebrate Christmas? He came for the explicit purpose to come and to seek and to save those who were lost. He came to die for sin. He came to rescue sinners from their sin and their hopelessness. That is the meaning of Christmas. So when we look at the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, this really highlights and puts in stark contrast and really profiles in magnificent glory the meaning and the purpose of the first Christmas, why Jesus Christ came into the world. He came not to be a do-gooder. He came not to just be a prophet and a Bible teacher. He came not to fix society. He came not to do social justice. He came for one thing, and that was to be the savior of sinners. And so Genesis 3 really reminds us of that reality. Why did Jesus come in the first place? So indeed, this is a Christmas message. So let's look at it together. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. For those of you who haven't been with us, two weeks ago we left off at the end of Genesis chapter 2. As I said, we're doing Genesis 1 through 3. By way of reminder, Moses wrote, when he composed Genesis, he had 11 chapters in Hebrew. We already talked about that. He wrote his prologue, which was Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 3, that was Moses' preface to the book or prologue. Then he begins chapter 1, which is where we are now. We're in chapter 1. He started his chapter 1 in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, when it said, uh, "These, this is the account of, this is the account of, the Toledoth. We talked about that. That's where he marks all of his chapter beginnings. This is the account of, these are the generations of, this is the history of. Then he goes on for quite a few chapters, which is actually his one chapter. So we're looking at Moses' first chapter. We looked at um, chapter 2. We finished it last week. Chapter 2 was zeroing in on day 6 of creation. 
chapter 1 was the macro picture of the days of creation, including day 6. And then chapter 2 zeroes in on exactly what God did on that day 6 of creation, regarding especially God's greatest creation, the apex of his creation, which was humanity. God saved the best for last indeed by creating humanity at the very end in his image, man and woman. And then Moses focuses in on Genesis chapter 2 to give, the, give us the important details about what it was like when God created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. And so we saw that already. God created Adam, the first man, out of the earth. Then God created the Garden of Eden in that perfect world that existed at the time. And then God put Adam in the garden for a very specific purpose, to live there, to have fellowship with God there, to maintain the garden, to enjoy the garden, to enjoy all the privileges that God had blessed him with, to name the animals. That all happened in the garden. And also in the garden, God issued one of his greatest commandments of all time ever given to humanity, and that's when he told Adam, you may eat freely from all of these trees, but except for the tree that is in the middle of the garden, do not eat from that tree. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree, Adam. You can eat from all these other trees that are totally sufficient. But don't eat from this tree that of the knowledge of good and evil, verse 17, Genesis 2:17. So it was a command from God. And then God warned, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And we talked about that. Death in the Bible, it means first and foremost separation. And God warned him. So then God, after putting Adam in the garden, Adam was by himself. And then we saw two weeks ago, we covered 18 through 25, a big chunk of Scripture in Genesis 2, which really highlighted fulfilling this major void that was in Adam's life when he was by himself and his need for a companion and how he needed a woman, the perfect complement to him, first and foremost, to fully reflect the complete image of God. The image of God is reflected in humanity with man and woman together, not in isolation. So we saw the significance of that. And also, God clearly delineated the roles of men and women or man and wife in Genesis 2, and we talked about that last week. We concluded by highlighting Genesis 2.18 where God said there wasn't a suitable helper for Adam, and that was not good. And God met that need, and then he created Eve, literally, supernaturally, miraculously, out of a rib from Adam. It literally happened. That's what God did. Amazing. And then he fashioned into that rib a woman who was the perfect complement to Adam. And then God performed the first wedding ever, the first marriage. And they were naked. They were unashamed. They were without sin. They were perfect. They felt and knew no guilt whatsoever. They lived in a perfect environment. It was amazing. We can't experience this in this life. We can't even imagine what that was like. Perfect life, perfect nature, perfect harmony, perfect marriage, perfect friendship, absolutely flawless, no sin. That was their existence when God completed it. And after he performed that first wedding, he said it is very good as he assessed all of his creation. And that's how Genesis chapter 2 ended. And I also highlighted the woman's main role as a wife. And that was that God would make a helper for Adam. And we personalized that and turned that into a practical challenge, saying that if you're a Christian woman today, and if you're married, and you have a husband, this is still true of you. This is actually your greatest identity. This is your greatest priority in life. From God's point of view, still true. But if you're a woman, you're a Christian, you're married, you have a husband, your greatest calling, your highest priority in life from God's point of view on a human level, practically speaking, is being a helper to your husband. It is what most pleases God. It's even a priority of you having your successful career. It takes priority over your personal success in life as a woman, if you're married. And so we emphasize that and, and gave a challenge that if you want to have the greatest fulfillment in life, the greatest blessing from God greatest way that you can minister to a fellow human being, that is your husband, seek first and foremost to be his helper and even ask for his input on how you might be able to do that. And so I asked the ladies here and gave an example of a woman of God that we got to know, and that was Elizabeth George, how every single day she asks her husband, beginning of the day, 
understanding her role, fulfilled totally in her role, understanding that comes with the blessing of God in her role. How can I help you, honey, today? Just tell me one thing. So I'm not going to ask the ladies and the wives if you've done that in the last two weeks, but that was the challenge that we left. If you were not here and you're a wife and you're a Christian, you have a husband, if you're able to get back and listen to that message and then think about that, that can really revolutionize your whole worldview about why God has you on this earth and what his main role for you is if you are a married woman. And then you can look at 1 Peter 3 that will even give commentary on that of what truly pleases God in this life. Now it's time to move on to chapter 3. Huge transition, probably one of the most dramatic transitions in all of Scripture. As we go now to Genesis chapter 3, it's, it's quite abrupt. Let's go ahead and read it. Everything is great. Everything is perfect. Everything has the blessing of God. It's all very good. And then all of a sudden, something happens between the, the white spaces after Genesis 2.25 and before Genesis 3.1. Let's read it together, the first 13 verses. It says, now, now that's a conjunction letting us know there's a transition. Something dramatic that is significant and even cataclysmic is taking place now or but the serpent or the snake was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent or the snake, said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And then Adam responded and he said to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Uh, this is amazing. Let's go ahead and look at the details of it. First, a couple of thoughts here about Genesis chapter 3 by way of reminder. What is our view? What is the historic view of Genesis chapter 3? Well, just a couple of things. This is narrative. This is continuing narrative. It's not poetry. This is Hebrew narrative. And the way it is written as narrative, it is history. This is true history. So this is not fiction. This is not, as many would propose, a parable. This is not symbolic. This is not allegorical. All of these things are being posited today by many, even evangelicals. Actually, that's probably the dominant view. It's not the dominant view in church history. Uh, one commentary I was reading yesterday on the back of his commentary on Genesis, it, it said it's an even, he's a well-known evangelical Old Testament scholar. And on his bio on the back of the commentary on Genesis, it says that he is the greatest interpreter of the Old Testament today. Had to do a double and triple take. Whoa, really? Wow, I wonder if he wrote his own biography. But anyway, that's that's quite a statement. And then his commentary on Genesis 3 
It's quite sad because it, it said the origin of Genesis 3 is myth. The greatest evangelical interpreter of the Old Testament today asserts that Genesis 3 is myth. That's not going to be our view of Genesis 3 as we go through it. So it's really important to understand that. This is not a peripheral passage. This isn't on a lesser scale of, you know, those important books in the Bible, like in the New Testament. Paul was pretty clear in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So Genesis is right up there with every other book in the Bible. It's all the living Word of God. And we need to understand it accurately, properly. It's, it's totally relevant. It's incredibly practical. As a matter of fact, I think Genesis 3 is one of the most practical passages in all of the Bible. So we take it seriously and at face value in terms of its practicality. I, some of you that pay attention to the news, I know some of you do because some of you have emailed me on this issue or talked to me about it, that one of the most event. Uh, Famous, influential evangelical preachers today. Actually, the ninth greatest evangelical preacher today. The ninth, so we've been told, the ninth greatest pre evangelical preacher in the world today said recently that Christians need to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament and just focus on the New Testament. Because there's nothing, we shouldn't be going to the Old Testament for anything relevant or practical in our Christian life. That's what, it, and So that created a tumult, and that's still swirling around in the evangelical world, if you're paying attention. A very influential, high-profile pastor, that was Andy Stanley in Atlanta, one of the most influential churches here in America. And basically saying, we shouldn't be wasting our time in the Old Testament. It's basically irrelevant. That's not going to be our view today. It is incredibly relevant we're going to see why it answers the most basic questions of life that we have to face with every single day genesis chapter 3 and the first sin questions like what well here's some questions why do bees sting wasps harass mosquitoes bite snakes poison spiders threaten dogs attack lice infest roaches nest mice defecate rats invade your home termites destroy Because of Genesis chapter 3, that's where the answer is. Why are there volcanoes that burn, earthquakes that instantly kill thousands, hurricanes that occur in New Orleans, Texas, Florida that devastate, floods that drown, droughts that starve, tornadoes? Why, is, why are there snowstorms and hailstorms and lightning storms that freeze and crush, kill, forest fires that eliminate entire cities and regions? as we recently had here in California. Why? The answer is in Genesis chapter 3. Really? Practically. Why did Mao Zedong kill 26 million people in China? Why did Hitler slaughter, along with the Nazis, over 17 million people? Why did Joseph Stalin kill almost 20 million people? Why did the ruler in Japan, Tojo, kill 5 million people? Leopold of Belgium killed 15 million people. Pol Pot in Cambodia, 3 million people. Why is there rioting and war going on right now, today in Paris? People are being killed. Why are over 1 million babies slaughtered through abortion every year here in America? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Why is there stealing, robberies, kidnapping, rape, drug dealing, sex trafficking, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, polygamy, child abuse, murder, because Genesis chapter 3, the origin of it all. Why are some babies born with defects and deformities? Why is there autism? Why are people born with Down syndrome? Why are people born blind or go blind? Why do people become deaf? Why are there crippled people? Why do you suffer arthritis? Why are there miscarriages? Why is there infertility? Genesis chapter 3. Why is there anxiety? Why do you have fear? Why do you have panic attacks? Why do people suffer, suffer from depression? Why is there suicide? Why do you have diabetes? Why do you have back pain? Why is there obesity? Why is there anorexia? Why is there bulimia? Why are there addictions of all sorts? Why is there lust in your heart that you can't seem to shake? Why do you have evil thoughts? Why do I have evil thoughts? Why do we have guilt? Why are some people bipolar? Why are there... People who are schizophrenic. 
Why are there people who are insane? Why is there ADD? Why is there ADHD? Why is there OCD? Why are people BAD? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Why do husbands cheat on their wives? Why do people cheat on their taxes? Why do students cheat at school? Why do wives cheat on their husbands? Why do married couples fight and argue? Why do toddlers have temper tantrums? Why do siblings fight? Why do children disobey? Why are children complainers and thankless? Why do children defy and hurt their parents as they grow older? Why are parents controlling, manipulative? Why do they exasperate their children? Because of Genesis chapter 3. Why do you keep looking at porn? Why do you gossip about people? Why do you criticize? Why do I criticize? Why do we not forgive? Why do we hold grudges and vendettas, even against fellow Christians? Why do we seek revenge and retaliation with a gross vindictiveness, even as Christians? Why do we covet? Why are we discontent? Why do we complain and whine? Why do we lack faith? Why don't we pray as we should? Why do we get angry? Why do we get violent? Because of Genesis chapter 3. The world can't answer these questions. The Bible answers these explicitly, specifically, literally. What does the world have to offer? Evolution, which is really a worldview of death and blood and destruction, survival of the fittest. Makes sense. Mao slaughtered 20 million people because he was the fittest. He had more power. Natural consequence. What's wrong with that? There's no morality. You can't have any standard of authority or morality with evolution whatsoever. It doesn't answer any of the questions in life. Why bad things happen. The Bible does. Genesis 3 does. So vitally important. Why do people die? As a parent, you ever had your kids ask you that? The answer is in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus or God told us in Genesis 2, 17, and then he answered it in several other passages. Why do people die? Why is there death? Why is there so much evil in the world, the so-called unanswerable problem of evil? It's answered in Genesis chapter 3, among other places in the Bible. Why is there so much evil in the world? Well, the Bible is the authority on evil in the world from Genesis to Revelation. It tells us why. It gives us examples of evil in the world. Why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Well, Genesis chapter 3. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus undergo the greatest evil in the history of the universe? When he got crucified, when he was totally innocent. Not only was he crucified, he was the God-man, totally innocent, who got crucified by his own people. Why did that happen? Genesis chapter 3. Why is there a hell? And why is that a reality? Because of Genesis chapter 3. I could go on. But hopefully that makes the point and brings to our senses why this is so significant. This is not a tertiary, secondary, irrelevant issue of Genesis chapter 3. It's actually a pillar and foundation of a Christian worldview. If you don't understand or believe Genesis chapter 3 literally at face value, the way it was taught and given by God, then you don't have a biblical and Christian worldview. And if you don't have a biblical and Christian worldview, you can't even interpret reality properly. No wonder people go insane. There's dissonance between what they think about reality and actual life. So we need to understand the world properly. So before I get into the details of Genesis chapter 3, I just want to tell you what the New Testament says about Genesis chapter 3 and the incidents that we just read. I'm not going to really comment on it. I'm just going to read the verses. What did Jesus think about Genesis chapter 3? What did Paul and the apostles think about Genesis chapter 3? If you have a Bible, you can follow along. And we'll just read the verses because here Jesus and the apostles explicitly referred to Genesis chapter 3, the first sin, Adam and Eve, and then taught principles about it that were relevant to life for all people ever since then. And as a result, they're relevant for us today. The first one is by Jesus himself in John chapter 8. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching publicly. 
He's having a back and forth with some of the disciples who actually have been following him and said, it says they believed in him. He said to the disciples who believed in him, also in that interaction, he's talking to the leadership of the Jewish people, whether it was the Pharisees, Sadducees, or the scribes, we don't know. But it is in the temple. This is a public exchange. People are listening in. Probably hundreds, if not thousands of people are listening in on this exchange that's happening at the top of their lungs. And Jesus is going back and forth with his critics who don't believe in him. They're taking issue with him. And the reason they were upset with him is because Jesus referred to God as his father. That was a stumbling block to them as he was talking to the Pharisees in John 8, starting at verse 13. He started talking about his father. I came from my father. I represent my father. They thought that was blasphemous. So they mocked Jesus in John 8 by asking a cynical, sarcastic, loaded question in verse 19, and they were saying to him, saying, repeatedly saying to him, barbing him publicly, trying to humiliate him, discredit him publicly by asking verse 19, they were saying to him, where is your father? Where you keep talking about your father, Jesus, where is your father? Because the Pharisees knew that there was a story. There was gossip that had been circulated. That Mary did not have, or that she became pregnant before she married Joseph. That story had been twisted and preserved for 30 years. There was a shadow of it, even though it was untrue, hanging over Jesus' head. The Pharisees and the critics of Jesus milked it for all it's worth, all it was worth, and, and here they, they're beginning to allude to it. Who are you? Your father? Don't talk about your father. You're a bastard child. You don't have a human father. If you do have a human father that's legitimate, where is he? Produce him. Show him. We know that Joseph was not your real father. That's what verse 19 means when they say to him, where is your father? So they have this long exchange about Jesus actually answers the question. My father is in heaven. And they're like, how dare you? He's not your father. Our, God is our father. And Jesus said, no, he's not. And they just keep going back and forth. And finally, and then Jesus says, uh, you're going to die in your sins if you don't believe me. He also says, you are seeking to kill me in verse 40. So it's escalating in the, in the debate. This is a public debate. This isn't a private exchange. Verse 41. This is what they said to Jesus. We were not born of fornication. There it is. Implying, Jesus, you were born of fornication. You're an illegitimate son. Your mom should have been stoned to death before you were born. What an allegation. Well, Jesus doesn't back down. And he, he tells them what's driving them, what's their motive, what's in their heart. What, what is their true origin? God is not their father, because if he was, they would accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they didn't. So he gives them the proper diagnosis. And that is verse 44, John chapter 8, verse 44. And this is where Jesus refers directly to the story in Genesis chapter 3. And he took it literally, Genesis chapter 3. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was a rabbi, the greatest Old Testament teacher there ever was. And he said to these Pharisees, these so-called Jewish experts, you are of your father, the devil. Wow. You say God is your father. You, actually, your father is Satan himself, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. What was that? Well, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, now he's referring to Satan who was in the snake in Genesis chapter 3. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The first lie ever spoken in the Bible is from Satan, Genesis chapter 3. What did Jesus think of Genesis chapter 3? Well, he took it literally, believed it was true history, explained many things. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 5, very important by the Apostle Paul. Did Paul believe that Adam was a real person? Absolutely. Did Paul believe that Genesis 3 was literal history? Absolutely. Was Paul an expert on the Old Testament? Absolutely. Here's what he said in Romans chapter 5, 12 and following. Talking about the need for Christ, the need for a Savior. Well, the reason we need Jesus as Savior is because there's sin in the world. 
Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. One man. Who is that one man, Paul? It's Adam. He names him later in the passage. Paul believed Adam was real. Paul believed that disobedience entered through Adam, and through Adam's disobedience, sin entered into the world because he's taking the Old Testament literally, Genesis chapter 3, literally. If you disregard Adam and say he was not a real person, you have no way to answer this most fundamental question. How did sin enter into the world, and why is the world so messed up? And then why does Paul say that Adam was a real person? Just as through one man sin entered in the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, all humanity, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, get this, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Okay, so Paul is saying that Adam is just as real as Moses was. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him. Adam is a type of Christ. There is no type in the Old Testament of Christ that wasn't a literal entity in the Old Testament. You can't have a symbolic, non-existent type that was a type of Christ. Absolutely impossible. Adam was real, and therefore he could be a type of Christ who was to come, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died. So Adam plunged all of humanity into sin and death. That includes us. Through the transgression of the one, many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So through one act of disobedience, all the world is condemned. And through one act of obedience by Jesus on the cross, provides salvation for all of humanity who believe in him. That's the parallel. And it's a gift. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. That's Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift from Jesus arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Main point here is that Paul literally, obviously, believes in Genesis chapter 3 as historical fact and that it's significant and that it matters. And Adam is just as real as Moses and Jesus himself. Uh, Also in Romans, where Paul, again, uh, alludes to Genesis chapter 3. Look at this. This is incredible. Starting at verse Romans 8, verse 18, Paul talks about how this world has been cursed. This world is messed up. This world is a problem. This world is hard. There is suffering that goes on in this world. Paul had a realistic view of the world. And we need to, too, as Christians. Why is this world so messed up? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why do things go bad? Why is there so much evil? Here's the answer. And it's because Paul has a literal view of Genesis chapter 3. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, there is, this life is characterized by sufferings. What a realistic view of the world. We don't believe in some pie-in-the-sky utopia right now on planet Earth and that we can achieve that through human achievement, human technology, human education, human efforts, cleaning up the environment, we're not going to usher in a utopia in this cursed, fallen world. Paul tells us here, he's talking about the curse, Genesis chapter 3, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, man, that's the blessed bliss of heaven. That's what the Christian needs to be looking forward to. That's the Christmas promise right there. For the anxious longing of the creation. So all of creation has anxiety, not just humans, but all of creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So the whole world is looking for the final redemption that will come through Christ in the millennium and then eternity and beyond. That's our future. Verse 20, for the creation, get this, was subjected to futility. Well, who is it subjected to? Who subjected the world to futility? God, the Father. In Genesis chapter 3 with the curse, we're going to see that. So currently the world in which we live has been subjected to futility by God through a curse, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. But he subjected it in hope. It's temporary. It's only for a time. We've got good news on the horizon for those who believe in Christ, and that is the glories of heaven yet to come. Your best life isn't now, Christian. It's in the future in heaven. For we know. uh, Yeah, verse 22. For we know, we as Christians know for a fact that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now groans verse 23 and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit if you're a christian even we ourselves groan even though we have the spirit living in us in this life as forgiven christians we still groan 
I, I groan. Do you groan? Because this world is subjected to futility and the curse. We groan within ourselves. And we're waiting. This is not our home, this present life. This present fallen cursed world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're just sojourners. We're on a journey. We're on a journey to glory. That's the Christian worldview. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What's the adoption? The resurrection body, the redemption of our body. I'm totally saved and forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ right now because I believe in his gospel, yet sin still lives in me. Corruption still overrides me. I will decay day by day. I will face death as a human, yet I am totally forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am completely saved, yet there's even more saving God is going to do, and that's the resurrection, the redemption of my body, and and even the nature within me is yet to come. That's a glorious thing. That's what we're looking forward to. Redemption of our body, verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, that's heaven and the glories of heaven. With perseverance, we will wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He helps us in this life that's full of pain and suffering and groaning and anxiety. These are the words that Paul uses to describe what life is like right now. Suffering, futility, corruption, suffering, pain, groans, groaning, groan, weakness, groanings. That's a realistic, accurate view of the world in which we live. But we've got the Holy Spirit as Christians to help us through. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts, the Holy Spirit, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. My prayer life is weak and pathetic. But the Spirit of God who lives in me is praying on my behalf. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit of God is praying for me because I am so weak and anemic. Dear Father, here's what McManus wanted to say, or here's what he should have said. The Holy Spirit's doing that on my behalf. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit is doing that for you too. How's your prayer life? My prayer life is awesome because the Holy Spirit's on my prayer team. Everything else lame and weak about my prayer life, that's my fault. It's on me. So the Spirit of God, present tense, is interceding for the saints, the holy ones, everyone who's a Christian, and he does it perfectly according to the will of God. Wow. Well, just to highlight that the Apostle Paul... He couldn't say any of that if he didn't take Genesis 3 literally, and he did, because it is true history. That's the state of the world. Just a couple of more, but very important. Look at Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This has to do with referring to Genesis chapter 3 as true history and roles for men and women in general, but also roles for men and women in the church and how men and women should behave and function in the church, primarily our roles. Not our worthiness. Men and women are equally worthy before God. But practically our roles. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul tells men in the church how they need to pray. They need to lead in prayer. They need to lead in worship. Women have a place as well. And how they should conduct themselves. Starting at verse 9. Women in the church need to be godly women. Verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction. A woman is allowed to receive instruction. That was new. That was a a revolution that was a blessing to women because in many cultures, women weren't considered human beings. They weren't educated. They weren't allowed to learn along with the men. Here Paul comes along and says, you know what? The women need to learn along with the men the word of God. So that's a blessing. Let the women learn. But they do it in submission to the leadership of the church, which is qualified plurality of male God-selected leaders. Verse 12, but I, I do not allow, as an apostle speaking on behalf of God, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. A woman isn't allowed to have exercise preaching, leading authority in the church. Men, pastors are to be qualified males. This is a role. God hasn't changed his mind on it. Well, why? Why are you saying, is that because you hated women, as some commentators would tell us, that Paul didn't like women, and so he's getting back at women? He was a misogynist. He was abusively patriarchal. 
he was single. He couldn't get a date because he was ugly. So this is his revenge. I'm not kidding. There was a commentator that talked about how ugly Paul was. I'm like, how would you know? I mean, there's no picture of Paul. Well, why, Paul? Why are you saying that women can't be leaders in the church? Well, not for cultural reasons, because that's one of the main reasons commentators give today. Well, this was a cultural thing, and it wasn't appropriate in Ephesus or the Greek culture in Paul's day. But times have changed, and then there's been the feminist movement. We've advanced so much. No. Paul's reason is in verse 14. Four, that means here's the reason. It's a God-ordained reason. I'm speaking as an apostle. Four, here's the reason. It's a universal principle. It's a transcendent principle. It begins way back at the very beginning in the origin of creation, and it continues to abide. It hasn't been rescinded. Here's the reason of these God-ordained roles. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That hasn't changed. That's inviolable. And there's another reason. So that's like a positive, good reason, creation. Then there's a bad reason as well that things haven't changed. Verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There it is. So we're gonna, we, we read the passage today, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and following, and how Eve was the first one to sin. She ate the forbidden fruit. She started it. But it wasn't full-blown, blatant disobedience on her part, what happened? Well, some, there is a difference between Eve's sin and Adam's sin. And Paul kind of alludes to it here. She was deceived. Adam was not deceived. They, there was no snake talking to him. And we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that when God gave the command, he gave it directly to Adam. Eve hadn't been created yet. Okay, Adam, you're in the garden. It's a beautiful garden. It's perfect. Here's all these trees. You got enough. Don't eat from this tree. And the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And I guarantee you that God told him more than that. So it was clear in Adam's mind. And then it was Adam's responsibility when his wife was presented to him by God, when they got married, that Adam was to nurture his wife, love his wife, protect his wife, teach his wife, give his wife revelation that God had already given that she wasn't around for the most important of which was maybe why they were created and made in his image and also their roles and responsibilities and also not to eat from that tree. So we know that Adam told Eve that, but she got it secondhand. She was the one that was deceived and she fell into, she was carried away into transgression. Unlike Adam, he wasn't deceived. He was willfully disobedient, defied God in a way that Eve did not. That's one of the reasons why Adam assumes the responsibility of the sin more so than Eve does. So there's no way this could be true if, if the Apostle Paul didn't take Genesis chapter 3 literally. Uh, one more. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Uh, actually, that's a parallel passage. It just, just talks about Paul reaffirms that Eve was deceived by the serpent. Uh, so we'll look at Revelation chapter 12 where the Apostle John believed that Genesis chapter 3 was literal. And here's what John says as a prophet of God. Revelation uh, chapter 12, he's talking about Satan. He calls Satan, and then he kind of gives a history of Satan. Uh, he calls him a red dragon. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Then another sign appeared into heaven to the Apostle John. John wrote it down, and behold, get this, there was a red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Well, who is this dragon? Well, this, this dragon is wicked. He is evil. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of Israel. He's the enemy of God's people. He motivates the Antichrist. Verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars. That's angels of heaven as they came down to earth and became demons probably. And the dragon, whoever this dragon is, stood before the woman who was about to give birth. That's Israel. So that when she gave birth, he might devour her child, the Messiah. So Satan spearheaded an attack on Jesus when he was born that he might be killed and murdered through Herod. He was the motivation, verse 5. And Israel gave birth to a son, that's Jesus, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up. He sended back into heaven to God on his throne. And then the woman in the future, Israel, will flee into the wilderness during the time of the tribulation to a place prepared by God. And they will be there for Three and a half years, verse 7, and there was war in heaven. This is the future during the time of the tribulation, I believe. Michael, the archangel, and his angels will be waging war with the dragon. Who is this dragon who is incarnate evil? Well, the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. 
and there was no longer a place for them in heaven, I believe in the future during the time of the tribulation. Michael overcomes them with God's power. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. Who is he? The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Okay, who was the snake that talked to Eve in Genesis chapter 3? Well, he's the dragon. He is the serpent of old. He is the devil. He is Satan. He is a deceiver. He deceives the whole world. And then you could read Revelation chapter 20 says the same thing. It refers to Satan as the devil and also as the serpent of old, directly referring to Genesis chapter 3. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now we have identified who the main characters are. There's Adam, who was a real man created by God. There is Eve, who was a real woman created supernaturally by God. And then there's this snake involved. And it's a real snake. Going back to verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Which takes us to point number one in your handout there. Number one, we're going to look at the threefold temptation, Satan's MO. Satan, how does Satan operate? And we see how Satan operates by deceiving people because his MO, his modus operandi, the Latin phrase meaning uh, the mode of operation, how somebody typically proceeds and Certain events, it's almost predictable. Here's their M.O. Well, this is Satan's M.O. Two years ago, Derek actually preached on the M.O. of Satan, two sermons. Remember that, the intel on the enemy that we need to be aware of? Well, it's, it's right here. So beginning point one, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, or the snake, and the word snake here in the Hebrew it pretty much means snake all throughout the Old Testament, used many times. It's used by Moses many times, and he always, for the most part, is referring to a snake, like a real animal. And that's what this is. Some people say, well, it wasn't a real snake. Well, yeah, it was. We know it's a real snake from the text because the middle of verse 3, it says, now the serpent or the snake was more crafty than any beast of the field. So it was a beast of the field. We know that God made beasts of the field during the first week. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 Verse 24, it talked about, remember those three categories of land animals that God made on day six? Cattle or domesticated animals. Then there were the creepy, crawly creatures like insects. Then there was that third category of animals. What were those? Those were the wild animals, the undomesticated animals, uh, the animals that didn't end up in the Garden of Eden. They had to be brought in by God supernaturally. Whereas the domesticated animals were already in the Garden of Eden with Adam. The beasts of the field. So the snake was one of the beasts of the field. It was one of the wild animals. It's also mentioned in verse eight, uh, verse 19, beasts of every beast. God formed or created every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to Adam. Verse 20, Adam gave nam- names to all the cattle or domesticated animals and all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. That, the beasts of the field are wild animals. And so Moses tells us here, now the snake, now the serpent. It's kind of interesting that Moses is writing this in 1400 B.C. They just got pulled out of slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And one of the greatest deities of the multitudinous deities that the Egyptians worshipped was this fictitious made-up god that was represented by a snake or a serpent. They thought the serpent was to be worshipped they deified the snake this had been ingrained in the worldview and in the dna of the jews for 400 plus years and it's almost like a polemic and moses is saying you know what you know what this, the origin of the snake is he's not god he's not divine he's not powerful here's what happened to the snake he was actually created and it also goes on and says he was a beast of the field Get this, which the Lord God had made. This is not Satan just didn't poof, turn into a snake. Satan entered into a snake, a, a snake that was made by God, because that's what it says. In other words, Satan possessed an animal. Well, that's, that's not possible. Well, actually it is. We know that in the New Testament, demons possessed, remember those pigs and they went hog wild? Literally. So demons can apparently go into animals. Demons can go into human beings if God allows it. And so literally Satan himself apparently went inside of this snake. And it says that the snake was more crafty than any beast. Now, when it says more crafty, it doesn't mean that the snake was evil. Uh, The word crafty is used throughout the Old Testament almost always in a neutral way and many times in the Proverbs in a positive way. The godly man is to be crafty or it's translated as sensible. 
sometimes shrewd. It has to do with intelligence, keenness, awareness, operating intelligently at a high level. And all it's saying is that of all the animals that God made, there's a range. There's a spectrum of the animals. There are some that have minimal intelligence, and then you go all the way up, and there are animals that function at the highest level, all the way down to a a gnat or an ant or an amoeba, all the way up to the more intelligent animals that we have. Some would say that, you know, the porpoise is the most intelligent. Or among dogs, it's the border collie or the golden retriever. Yay! Um, and the, the dumbest dogs are the hounds, bloodhounds. I'm sorry if you have one. And that's all he's saying is that the snake was at this higher level of perception. In other words, the snake was the most effective tool that Satan could use to pull off what he wanted to pull off with its subtlety, smoothness, maybe the unawareness of Adam catching on of what was going on. For whatever reason, Satan knew. Satan knows what he can use for tools. Satan, that's usually the way uh, Satan operates is through tools, whether it's through human beings or other means. It's usually secondhand how Satan operates. That's why he's so deceptive. Because you got a temptation in your way, you don't even realize, wow, this is from Satan. We don't think that way because we usually can't discern that. So Satan was allowed by God to use this animal that God had created that was a blessed thing for his purposes, and that was to deceive the woman and to defy God. And he was successful at it. And he's been allowed to do something that the snake wasn't able to do. No doubt the snake couldn't talk before this, but... Satan possesses the snake, and the snake said to the woman. That's amazing. This is early on after they were created, by the way. Not, not much time elapsed. And by the way, S- Satan fell between Genesis 2.25 and 3.1. At some point, Satan, who was created as a good angel, maybe the greatest of the angels, a blessed angel, the leader of the angels, a flawless angel, according to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, maybe if we put those passages together, Some would say Luke chapter 10, Jesus comments on that as well. Somewhere, Satan, after being created by God, defied God, was full of pride, wanted to be like God. Sin was found within himself, it says in the Old Testament. Lucifer. That was the origin. What is the origin of sin? Sin was found within himself, said God. God did not create sin. Satan was the one that brought sin into our world. Where did sin come from? Satan was the one that brought it into our world. That's clear from this passage. Well, where did sin ultimately? Well, sin was found within himself. That's all the scripture tells us. And he introduced sin into the world via a temptation. And so the snake, this talking snake, says to Eve, indeed, surely indeed, it's emphatic in the Hebrew, Surely, and it's mockery. It's a question. It's the way Satan operates. Principle number one in how God, uh, how Satan operates and tempts us. By distorting the word of God. Those are his most, by distorting, and just a little, quoting scripture and just putting a little tweak on it, a little nuance on it, or interpreting it out of context the wrong way. Or just blatantly misrepresenting the word of God. Because right here, Satan misquotes the Bible. He misquotes God. Indeed, surely, woman, has your God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You mean your God, your creator, isn't going to let you eat from any of the trees? That was a lie. He took part of the word of God and then he twisted it. So that's tactic number one, twisting the truth of the word of God, even so subtly, just a little bit, just a nuance. Also, Satan gets us to question the word of God. Did God say? Did God really say? That comes from Satan. Did God? Isn't it ironic that we have all these so-called Bible teachers in the last 200 years when they read Genesis 3 and they say, did God really say? Is this really history? Did this really happen? Was the snake really real? Was there really an Adam? Was there really any? Did God really say that? Wow. You don't sound like a Bible teacher. You sound like Satan when you say that. Did God really say? getting us to question the authority of the blessed living word of God, which is true. Indeed, has God said, you shall not, and then twist it a little bit. God never said that. Verse 2, well, what was the woman's response? The woman said to the serpent, 
from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So she does correct the record. No, we can eat from some of the trees. But, verse 3, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. So Eve knew what the command given to Adam was. God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Oh, did you notice something different there? She said you can't touch it. Did God say you can't touch it to Adam in Genesis 2, 17? No. But from the context, he probably did. Or it's just an implication. You can't eat it unless you touch it. So it could very well be that Adam told Eve that. We're not supposed to, t- we're not supposed to eat that tree. So whatever you do, don't touch it. Because if you're going to accuse... Some people, commentators have actually said, well, here's the first sin. Eve lied. And she added this onto the word of God. You shall not touch it. Well, the Bible never says that her first sin was lying. Adding the phrase, touch it. It's clear what the first sin she committed was, and that was eating the fruit. So we don't need to read too much into that. And then the serpent responds to the woman and says, just just blatantly denying the word of God. So that's the progression of Satan's temptation is distort the little the word of God a little bit, question the word of God a little bit, and then just flat out deny the word of God. And that's what he does. So there's a progression. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. That's a lie. That's what Jesus meant. He's the liar. Verse 5, and, he, and then he goes on, then, he, then you mock the character of God. You undermine the character of God. So that's the progression. You attack his word, and then you attack his, his character. Oh, God's not like this. God is like this. God isn't loving. God would never send people to hell. That's not the true God, the God of the Bible. God doesn't know everything. He can't see the future. All these ways that people undermine the true character of God, that's what they got it from Satan. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it your, it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Just a flat-out lie and blaspheming the very character of God. This is frightening. The first sin. What was the first sin? Well, as we look to our next messages, it's articulated by God very clearly in verse 17. Lord God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree. That was the first sin. Violating clearly Genesis 2.17 was the punishment. So the first sin wasn't that Eve said, oh, God said not to touch it. The first sin wasn't that uh, Adam abandoned his role as leader and he was passive, even though he's guilty, and that was part of it. But the sin that he was condemned for and held accountable for and plunged all of humanity into accountability for sin was the fact that he disobeyed and defied God's direct command not to eat from that tree. Those other things are definitely related, and that's why we are in the situation we are today. Do we live in a messed up, fallen world? Yes. Are there horrible things that continue to go on even during the happy Christmas season? Yes. Why is that? Because Genesis 3, God tells us very why. He wants us to know. He wants us to have a realistic view of life, but he doesn't leave it there. That also explains why he sent a blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to leave that hope with you, especially if you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior. Hopefully you've been listening to the Word of God. This is Scripture written thousands of years ago. It hasn't changed. It's still the same. It reflects the very mind of the God who created you, the very God who's offering a a plan of salvation and forgiveness of sin in Him and a glorious eternity in heaven. It's the same God who will judge every soul, every one of us, whether we believe in Him or not. And so my heart's desire, especially for those of you who maybe are not Christians, during this Christmas season, you would reflect on the true meaning of Christmas and the message of the Bible and the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came down as God, took on a human body, lived a perfect life for 33 years, never sinned, and willingly went to a cross to be executed and absorbed the wrath of God the Father for any sinner who would believe that he died as their substitute. And all you have to do is recognize that you are sinful, you need forgiveness, you can't know the Father apart from Jesus, who he is and what he did. You can't do anything to save yourself or earn God's forgiveness. All we can do, all we have to offer to God is a heart of confession. Father, I have sinned against you. Lord Jesus, save me. And I believe that you are the Savior. I believe you died for me and rose again from the dead. And I believe that I can be adopted into your glorious family by virtue of just this prayer I offer to you. You believe that? God will answer that prayer instantaneously, and you'll have the best Christmas in the history of your life. That's my heart's desire for you. Let's go ahead and pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for this day and a wonderful day of worship to be with the saints. 
the privilege we have to search your word together, to learn from you. Thank you for these hard, difficult, realistic reminders from the book of Genesis. Thank you also for the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ to override and overcome every single one of them. And it's only because of you, Lord Jesus. We give you all the glory. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.